This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The challenge of mental illness is impacting America nationwide. It impacts our states, our communities, our courts, and our entire justice system. The courts are at the center of a clash between competing funding choices, community concerns, and those struggling with behavioral health issues. Local jails and detention centers are the largest providers of mental health services in the country. That's for both adults and children. In 44 states, a jail or prison holds more mentally ill individuals than the state's largest psychiatric hospital. On the other hand, Nearly 30% of all family homicides involve a mentally ill individual. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month is the first of five episodes. They'll be spread out over the coming winter and spring, discussing the National Judicial Task Force on examining state courts' response to mental illness. Some of the questions we'll explore include, what do we know now about mental health, incarceration, and the courts? What sort of change can courts make to deal with the mental health challenge? What options do judges have in helping the mentally ill? What sort of options should judges have? And finally, what advice do our guests have for the rest of us regarding mental health and the courts? I'm joined today by the Honorable Stephen Leifman, judge of the 11th Judicial Circuit Court in Miami, Florida, and Patty Tobias, principal court management consultant with the National Center for State Courts in Denver, Colorado. Thank you both for joining today's podcast. Judge Leifman, let me start off by asking, since you were elected judge in Miami, you've been quoted as saying you had no idea that when you took the bench, that you would become, and I quote, the gatekeeper of the largest psychiatric facility in Florida, the Miami-Dade County Jail. Your work emphasizes the need to divert individuals charged with certain crimes from jail to community-based mental health programs so they can receive treatment and continuing care. Since taking the bench, what have you learned about mental health and the criminal justice system? You know, I actually got involved in this uh, issue back in 2000 when I was getting ready to go on the bench. And I was approached by the assistant state attorney and the assistant public defender. And they asked me if I would speak to a couple whose son was in jail on a case I was about to hear. And at the time I was handling what we call a misdemeanor jail division. So these are people charged with misdemeanors who are still in custody. Uh, Generally it's three kinds of people. It's those with attached felonies who are not allowed out of custody. It's those that may be too poor and cannot afford a bond out of custody, but mostly it was people with serious mental illnesses that didn't know how to get out of custody and very low level offenses. And so, um, The lawyers asked me if I would speak to this couple. Their son was in jail on one of these cases. And I brought this couple back in. They were lovely people, very sophisticated and terribly distraught. Uh, The mom was crying. The dad was shaking. And they started to tell me about their son. He was brilliant. He had gone to Harvard. He had a late onset of schizophrenia. And he was now cycling through the criminal system. And I think when you're a new judge, which I was at the time, you think you have a lot more power and a lot more wisdom than you really do. And I also was under this assumption that we must have a mental health system, that if someone got arrested, you know, we work in logic, 
And I knew if someone got arrested and had a heart attack, we clearly had a system for them. And I assume we must have the same for people with mental illnesses. So I promised them that I would get their son help. And as I started to go back into the courtroom, the mom stopped me and she said, uh, Judge, there's one more thing I need to tell you about my son. She said, respectfully, he probably knows more about the mental health system than you do. And I looked at her. I wasn't clear what she was trying to tell me. And she said, oh, you see, my son is the former head of psychiatry at Jackson Memorial Hospital, our largest public hospital in Florida. And just like your reaction was my reaction. And I went into the court and I called this case and I was totally untrained. We had no training for judges at the time. And he, I ended up asking him a series of questions because I didn't know what I was doing. And I triggered a full-blown psychotic episode in court. And it was horrifying. He was screaming at the top of his lungs and carrying on and <clears throat> telling me that his real parents died in the Holocaust and the people in court were from the CIA and they'd come to kill him. And it was his parents. So I ordered this whole battery of psychological evaluations. He ended up spending, I don't know, 10, 12 weeks on some ridiculous, I think it was a local county ordinance, not even a statutory offense, only to find out I had no jurisdiction to do anything and I released him back to the street. And so when you ask me what I have learned, what I've learned is that we don't really have a mental health system in this country, that in many ways the criminal court system is the repository of many failed public policies, and there is no greater failed public policy than our treatment towards people with mental illnesses. But I have also learned that people with mental illnesses are no more dangerous than the general population, that on medication, they're much less dangerous than the general population, and that they sadly are much more likely to be victims of violent crimes by a huge margin than perpetrators. And the good news is recovery rates for many people with serious mental illnesses is actually better than for people with heart disease and diabetes. And for me, what I find most galling about the system is that we don't offer people the ability and access to treatment that will help them recover. And then we punish them when they don't behave the way we need them to behave when we never offer them the services to begin with. And it's fixable. There's a lot going on, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but we really can and should reverse what we're doing now. It almost goes without saying that jails are not the right place for the mentally ill. And yet I suspect that a lot of folks think that incarceration is a necessary evil in order to keep our communities safe. Judge Leifman, make the case that we need to stop thinking this way. There's a couple levels of that. Number one is many of these individuals would never be in custody if they were getting treatment. Number two, that for individuals that are charged with low-level offenses, the research shows us that even one day in jail increases recidivism by several times. And a week to 10 days in jail for someone with a serious mental illness makes it even worse. And so in many ways, we are making, we are threatening public safety even worse by the way we're handling these cases. Look, there are some people that do commit really horrible offenses that need to be in custody. It's not about that, but that's a very small population. The vast majority of these individuals with really good treatment and case management will never come back into our criminal justice system. 
And that's what we need to do, because if you do it the right way, what happens is you improve your public safety, you spend your tax dollars a lot more effectively, and you allow people who are just sick, just ill, the opportunity for real recovery and hope. And we know it works. And so I think we really need to rethink what we're doing now. We're making the situation worse. We're spending billions. In fact, 70% of the people in jail and prisons today either have a serious mental illness, a substance use disorder, or both. And it costs this country over a trillion dollars a year in direct and indirect cost. So we get nothing for that trillion dollars. We could be using those dollars for a lot of other things that we need, and we could allow people to have you know, their lives back. Patty Tobias, recent interviews with task force members have focused on what they refer to as real change. What do we mean by real change? This National Judicial Task Force to examine state courts' response to mental illness is only the third National Judicial Task Force ever established by the Conference of Chief Justices and the Conference of State Court Administrators. Establishing the task force meant that all chief justices and all state court administrators were very focused and concerned about this issue. And with uh, these interviews, uh, we have been hearing from the four chief justices and the four state court administrators that are leading the task force. And what they're saying by real change is the sort of systemic change that is necessary to address this, I call it a crisis of response to those with mental illness. Real change means an all of government approach. We need state by state, county by county, all three branches of government and the federal government to devote the necessary resources uh, and um, improvements uh, to this, again, very complex problem. Uh, that is impacting the intersection of the behavioral health world, uh, the criminal justice world, the civil courts, the family courts. This problem addresses and impacts all court dockets. So what do they mean by real change? Uh, They mean big change, and they mean uh, a whole-of-government approach to addressing these problems across all court dockets. Patty, one of the suggestions the task force made was for courts to conduct a collaborative and candid assessment of the mental health landscape in their community. If a court wants to conduct such an assessment, what should they be looking at, and who should they include? You know, this is an ongoing process. As the task force continues its work, they're developing more and more resources that are not only helping state court leaders, but trial court leaders. But if, you know, we need to get going on it, the task force developed a guide for trial court leaders. And uh, in that guide, it identifies a number of steps that uh, judges can take Uh, to look at uh, what's going on in their community, to convene a stakeholders group, to ask the question of, uh, you know, what's going on and how are we doing in our community? And uh, to accompany that that trial court leading change guide 
we have on the website uh, what we call the Behavioral Health Resources Hub. And we organized it by um, the sequential intercept model. And there are just a ton of resources out there and available to every community starting now. And so uh, the, you know, what we usually recommend uh, through that guide and through ongoing communication is convene your group of stakeholders, consider um, conducting a, a sequential intercept mapping model. And I can talk more about that um, later in the program, but really pull together. What are the gaps in your community? What are the opportunities in your community? And where do you, know, where do you wanna put your priorities? But this work requires the entire community. The courts cannot do it alone. It requires a community uh, by community approach. Peter, if I could follow up real quick, um, because that's how we started. And I think one of the most important things to remember is that as judges, when we invite people to meetings, they come even if they don't want to be there. And we have the ability to convene. We have that wonderful moral authority. And in 2020, after, and excuse me, in 2000, 21 years ago, uh, after we had this situation with this psychiatrist, this is exactly what we did. I invited all the traditional and non-traditional stakeholders to a two-day summit, and we mapped out the intersection between the criminal justice system and the community mental health system. And what we found is that we, we the so-called healthy people, were embarrassingly dysfunctional, that we had set up a system designed to fail, which it did brilliantly. We were wasting millions and millions of dollars and accomplishing absolutely nothing. And I remember being in that room because we had, you know, the equivalent of our sheriff and police chiefs and the prosecutors and all the stakeholders. And at one point we looked at each other and asked, you know, who's more sick? Us so-called smart policy people who had designed this terrible system or these poor souls who are just ill and nobody is accountable to them or for them in this one individual was cycling through every acute system in that room again and again and again and accomplishing absolutely nothing and making them worse. And when we realized that, we sprung into action. And as a result of that event, we put together this very elaborate written collaborative agreement that structurally changed how we did business. Judge Leifman, information and options available to judges appear to be a critical part of addressing the mental health crisis in the courts. What are some of the challenges judges face in addressing those with mental illness and substance abuse disorders? I think that the biggest issue, and, I, and I've seen a sea change, the, the earlier issue is getting judges to understand that there was a problem and what the problem was. We've gotten past that because of a lot of the great work the National Center of State Courts and others have done in this arena. But now the biggest hurdle that most judges have is finding out, finding resources to access for this population. So now if they want to make these changes, they're trying to figure out where the resources are to help people get treated. And and that's part of the challenge. It's also part of the reward of bringing all these different groups together because communities have some level of service. It just judges don't always know what those services are and you need to figure out how to identify it. Plus, I will tell you, there are a lot of new federal dollars out there with the American Rescue Plan, 
And we've been able to tap into a big chunk of them in Miami as of recent um, to be able to even help us enhance what we're doing. And so right now, um, so your podcast is so timely, people should be talking to their local governments about the federal dollars that they are sitting on right now, because a big chunk of it is for this area of mental health and substance use and working with the local government and state to be able to develop some better systems of care and and access treatment that may not have been there before. I would just add to that. uh, I totally agree with everything Judge Leifman said. And I would add that judges need options. Um, They need information and options when addressing those with uh, mental illness and um, substance use disorders. Uh, They don't have often diversion options. They don't have screening and assessment information brought to them. So they need to be reaching out to the behavioral health providers in their community. They need to be developing those options uh, that judges need um, when, when they have someone in front of them that has a serious mental illness. You know, one of the things that I think the task force is really focused really well on is also figuring out how to educate judges Uh, not just about these issues, but how to talk to this population, how to access these resources, how to have an effective system of care. And I think that's one of the reasons that people should really be focusing on what the task force is doing, because as we move forward, there's going to be an enormous opportunity for judges to learn how to do this. Judge Leifman, mental health courts are widely seen as being very helpful in dealing with America's mental health crisis. Mental health courts, however, have been accused of being boutique courts that can only serve a relatively small slice of folks who could use their services. Can mental health courts scale up to serve what looks to be a huge part of the criminal justice population? I'm so glad you asked that question because a lot of people think that um, a mental health court is the answer to this problem. It is a small piece of the answer and it has to be done right. I used to teach a class called Do No Harm. And sometimes these courts, if they're not operated appropriately and properly, can do more damage than good. And so while there is a role for a mental health court, it has to be clearly defined and you have to really use the evidence-based practices out there. And I'll give you a classic example. And you're right, most of these courts take too few people to make a dent in the problem. And they often take the wrong too few people. We know today that there are categories of individuals that come into the criminal justice system. And there is an entire matrix that is uh, evolves around a whole series of science and research. And you know, people that we consider to be low risk, low need, meaning that they're not a uh, real risk of criminality and their illness isn't that bad. Those are the people that usually end up in the mental health court that don't need to be there. And what often happens is they get integrated with higher risk, higher need people who take them under their wing and teach them bad habits and turn them into real criminals. Or they end up in jail longer than they would otherwise because they really don't need our level of supervision. And so when you're doing these courts, you really wanna be focusing on the moderate to high risk people that need court intervention. But to me, and personally from all the work that I've done over the years, I think they need to be part of a diversion system. For instance, in Miami, anybody charged with a misdemeanor crime is eligible. (laughs) Plus, we have 
people charged with felonies that are eligible for our program. And we do both a pre and post arrest aversion system. So what I think needs to be done is to try to keep as many people with mental illnesses out of the criminal system to begin with. And then if they do penetrate the system, you wanna make sure that you are focusing on the people that you need to be focusing on. And those that don't, you, you should probably transfer them to a probate division and let the civil system uh, take care of their mental health needs. And the people that really are at a higher risk to our public safety, what we should be doing is making sure they get all the types of treatments and supports that they need to stop their behavior and to treat their mental illness, because we know what those things are. We know how to do it and we know how to get better outcomes. Court and community partnerships have proven critical in addressing mental health needs within the community. They can do this by identifying appropriate ways to promote interventions before defendants get involved in the criminal justice system. One suggested method has been the sequential intercept model. Patty, what is the sequential intercept model? And can you give an example of how courts have used it effectively? Uh, Thanks, Peter. You know, the sequential intercept model was developed years and years ago um, through work done by the Policy Research Associates. And uh, we're big fans of the sequential intercept model. And in fact, we kind of added to it for courts. The model is a criminal justice and behavioral health framework. And the idea is that you want to, quote, intercept uh, the individual at the earliest stage possible. And so the criminal justice uh, behavioral health framework has six intercepts, starting with intercept zero. And that's what can be done in the community. What kind of robust um, crisis response system do you have? What sort of community resources do you have? So before anyone is uh, involved in the justice system, what can we do in the community? And then the first intercept is sort of that law enforcement involvement. So if law enforcement is involved, What ability and resources do they have? What alternatives do they have? Oftentimes law enforcement, when dealing with someone in a mental health crisis has two options, Uh, arrest that person, take them to the jail, or number two, drop them, or I would say dump them at the emergency room. And both of those are really not productive options. And so that's an area that communities really focus on. And then uh, intercepts two and three are more focused um, with the courts, if there is court involvement and court engagement with the jails, uh, with case processing, with release programs, uh, what sort of dispositional alternatives, you know, that's where the task force is really focusing its energy, that if a case is filed, what are the options and alternatives for the judges? What are the pathways that that case and that more importantly, how can we focus on what that individual may need to ensure successful outcomes so that we are preventing recidivism and really minimizing that? And then the later intercepts are with you know, probation and re-entry and corrections, and how can we, uh, again, improve our delivery of services uh, through the entire range of the intercepts? Courts 
like Judge Leifman said, are the conveners and they can convene the community and use a sequential intercept mapping process. The game center, which is operated through the SAMHSA federally, uh, is often offering opportunities to provide communities that option, or you can, a court can reach out to the policy research associates and contract for a, a SIM mapping. So we really encourage it. It's a wonderful community uh, activity. Uh, we also encourage um, training facilitators to conduct those SIM mappings. I actually think there needs to be a negative one or, <laughs> or what they turned into the zero. Because, uh, Peter, we've learned a lot over the last 10 years about trauma. And we know, for instance, that about 92% of all the women in jails and prisons in the United States with serious mental illnesses have these horrific, horrific histories of trauma, usually sexual abuse. And we know that about 75% of men in jails and prisons in the United States with serious mental illnesses also have horrific histories of trauma, sometimes sexual abuse, but more often they are victims of domestic violence for long periods of time, or they're witnesses to really horrible, violent crimes. And just like a soldier who sees something terrible, these are physiological reactions. They're not emotional reaction. It's the brain getting overdosed with cortisol, basically, and it breaks and changes the brain activity. And so there are assessment tools out there today, things like ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experience Assessment, where we know that if you have a score, I think of like four and above, you pretty much have a 100% chance of having a substance use disorder and or a mental health disorder. Just as a result of your trauma, you have severe PTSD. And so Instead of doing something about it, we allow these children who really are victims to end up in our criminal justice system because we haven't dealt with their illness early on. And I'll give you the, one of the saddest stories that I've experienced as a judge. We had this young woman in court. She was charged with a misdemeanor. We were trying to encourage her to go into our program. She also had a very serious substance use issue. And um, she said that she would go, but she wanted to be let out for a couple of days. She was in custody. And, you know, one of the things I always do when um, addressing people is I ask them if, if they mind, if I ask them a personal question, you know, here, we're in open court. You know, it's not like you would ask someone in open court if they had breast cancer. You, you shouldn't do it for a mental health disorder. So I always ask. And um, she hesitated a little bit. So I asked her if she'd be more comfortable coming up to the bench and talking to me privately, which she was. And so she came up with the lawyers and I said to her, look, um, I don't know anything about your history, but I do know that, you know, a lot of uh, women who are in our system have really horrible histories of trauma. I don't know if you are one of those, but if you are, we're really here to help you and, and we want to assist you. Well, all of a sudden she started crying. She broke down. And she proceeded to tell me that when she was four years old, her horrible father had brought her to a bar where she had been sexually assaulted at four. And then it went on for a couple of years. And what was worse is she told me that I was the first person that she had ever told this to. I mean, why is a criminal court judge having to hear that kind of story first? 
had she just been afforded an opportunity for treatment at an earlier age, she never would have been in front of me. And I ended up releasing her. And sure enough, as promised, she showed up the next morning on time with all of her goods in hand in a large garbage bag, which is all she had. And she went into a residential treatment program and has done very well. But, you know, it just shows you that those statistics are real. We need to recognize it. We need to know how to talk to people that have these issues. And then we need to know how to offer them help. I'm always reminded of that old adage from W. Edward Demings, that you can't manage what you can't count. Patty, in terms of mental health in the courts, what statistics should we be keeping? Peter, that's an area where we still have a lot of work to do. Um, As the task force examines what data and records are available, they, they did publish an interim data guide. But frankly, what we're finding is that there is a dearth of information. There is a dearth of data that really combines and takes that collaborative approach. It's not just court data that we need to really uh, base decisions on and base and move forward on. It's that collaborative data. The jails sometimes have important data that is informative to the courts. Behavioral health providers have data that's important to maintain. I'll just use one story to illustrate that we still have a lot of work to do in this area. The question is around competency and the delays and deficiencies that we're seeing across the nation in this area. We can't even find the number uh, and tell you the number of individuals who have been determined incompetent to proceed in a criminal case. They've been ordered to be restored uh, in the community or at a state hospital, and yet they are waiting in custody most of the times, awaiting a restoration bed. In many jurisdictions, nobody knows how many are on that waiting list and how long they have been on that waiting list and and when might they be moved to an appropriate facility. That's just one example of the need for a collaboration of data that really will inform our communities, our states, and the nation, frankly, and the task force on the status of the problem, as well as developing those data-driven improvements that are necessary. So I can't tell you today, except for through the interim guide, but I can tell you this is an important area for all court professionals and judges to be looking at, Look at what data you can pull together and be creative about it. Uh, Check state sources, check emergency rooms, check other providers and what information they have. But this has to be a court and community data-driven effort. We've been talking about mentally ill individuals in jails and prisons. And by a recent estimate, there are over 380,000 individuals who are incarcerated right now suffering from mental illness. Can you provide some context to this number? 
it includes those who are seriously mentally ill. Does it also include those with behavioral issues such as ADHD? Does it include individuals with learning disabilities? Judge Leifman? Actually not. That number is focused primarily on people that have been diagnosed with a serious mental illness itself, which would generally include things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression, and maybe PTSD. There is a whole nother group of individuals with things like ADHD, uh, intellectual disabilities that are part of our system, but not part of that number. There's another uh, two to 300,000 people with serious mental illnesses under correctional supervision that aren't in custody. Uh, Every year we have between 1.5 and 1.7 million people arrested with serious mental illnesses in about 2 million incidents. So it is a large percentage of what we deal with. It's about 14% of all men. And interestingly enough, there's a greater overrepresentation of women. It's about 33% of all women that get arrested have a serious mental illness. And I think a lot of that has to do with what I was talking about earlier because of trauma-related issues. Overall, it comes out to about 17% of the entire uh, jail and prison population has one of these serious mental illnesses, which are those illnesses that I discussed earlier. So it is a large part. The other thing that people don't necessarily appreciate, these cases take a lot longer usually to handle than other cases. So while they may only be 17% of the docket, they may be 50% of our time because it's not like the behavioral health issue stops once they're in bars. Sometimes it's actually exacerbated because of the re-traumatization that's going on for them when they're in custody. Patty? You know, on the, on the data piece, going back mm-hmm. there, uh, Peter, you know, we don't have the national data on, say, how many criminal cases uh, are filed where the individual has a serious mental illness. But anecdotally, from all the judges we talked to, you know, they would say up to almost 70% of their docket involves someone with a serious mental illness or a substance use disorder. And yet our system, our criminal justice system is designed to be adversarial and and only, you know, 30% of the individuals probably should go through an adversarial system. We need to flip the way we handle uh, our cases, our case flow management uh, to address the needs uh, of the individuals. We need to flip that 70% adversarial system to a better, you know, behavioral health triage system yeah. and have the judges have their options. We've been joking lately that we need... You know, we don't like to call them specialty courts, but we need specialty courts for the 30% that don't have a mental health or substance use disorder. And we need a therapeutic jurisprudence system for the 70% that do. We would get much better outcomes than what we're doing today. Yeah. It's, it's, it is actually ridiculous what we do today. And when you kind of take a 70,000 foot view of this, you scratch your head and you're like, how did we design something this stupid? And, and then we're all shocked and surprised that it doesn't work or somebody goes out and does something terrible. And it's because we didn't afford them the opportunity f- for treatment to begin with. Uh, statistically, it's about 90 something percent of people with serious mental illnesses get out relatively quick. 
when they are arrested. They're not committing heinous offenses. And, you know, it's the same people that do that. And, and so, you know, I tell prosecutors when they're hesitating about doing these kinds of programs, I'm like, look, you, you have two choices. You can release people with treatment or you can release people without treatment. We know what happens when you release them without. So it's just like cancer or heart disease. We know what happens if you don't give people treatment that are ill. They get worse. What is the one takeaway you would like those tuning into today's episode to come away with? Judge Leifman? That change works. That people can recover. And hope is on the way. And help is on the way. And that we want more judges to participate. We want them to learn about what we're doing. And we want them to know that there is, I think in 10 years, we're going to look back and people are going to look at us like, how did you ever do, why did you ever treat people this way? Kind of like we look at state hospitals 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I really think a sea change is about to happen. And, and the Conference of Chief Justices and, and the Conference of State Court Administrators in many ways is leading this change. And, and judges should be optimistic right now that we're going to fix this. But we need their help. And uh, we want them to be part of it. Patty? And building on that, I want all the listeners to know that there are resources available today and there will be additional resources available to all court leaders across the nation. And you can get started today with all of the solutions that uh, Judge Leifman has mentioned uh, throughout the podcast. And with a particular focus uh, to get started on uh, is that competency crisis. I think through the work of the task force and others that have been working in this area, every court professional, every judge can get started looking at their systems or lack of systems in their communities today. So uh, let's get started and addressing um, the changes that must occur, that systemic change, Peter, uh, that real change that uh, the task force is talking about in all of our communities. You know, we've been at this for almost 21 years in Miami. As a result, the number of arrests went from 118,000 a year to 53,000. Our jail audit went from 7,300 to 4,000. We closed one of our three main jails at an actual, not cost shift, actual savings of $12 million a year. So far, that's $84 million in real money back to the county. We've reduced recidivism in our misdemeanor division from 75% to 20%. We reduced recidivism in our felony division from 75 to 25%. And so we know this works. We've reduced our police shootings substantially by training over 7,600 officers to not arrest people with these illnesses, but to access treatment for them. So this works. And the key is figuring out how to scale it and and affording these opportunities to everybody in the country, not just in Miami-Dade. Patty, the National Center and the task force have put a priority on sharing information, resources, and opportunities through a regularly published newsletter. What type of information is included in these newsletters and how does someone sign up to receive them? These are called uh, the behavioral health alerts and uh, we curate resources, research and news clippings from across the nation. 
uh, judges, uh, court administrators, and others send us information. And uh, each publication comes out twice a month, on the first of the month and on the 15th of the month. And it includes uh, all task force resources and activities, upcoming webinars, research that's been conducted by others that's relevant to this information, new programs, new developments. You can sign up by going to the National Center Behavioral Health webpage, or they can email me at ptobias at ncsc.org. But definitely, I hope all of our listeners sign up to receive those behavioral health alerts to keep abreast of the vast amount of information, resources, webinars, training, uh, free SIM trainings and the like, uh, so that you can, again, begin work today. I'm always reminded as a longtime state and trial court administrator, my focus has always been on each individual coming into contact with our court. And there are so many individuals that are coming into contact with our court, and we're not doing the right thing. So as a court administrator, I really encourage us to uh, take a look at those behavioral health alerts and stay abreast of the work and get started today. I want to thank Judge Steve Leifman and Patty Tobias for joining us today and letting us know about the important work of the task force. Be sure to join us in January for the next installment in this series on mental health and the courts. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. You personally face the challenge of mental illness in the courts every day, and you face that challenge with skill and empathy. Thank you. Join us in December for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.